Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Episode 73 of The High Note, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by writers Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Pedants, um, of which we have a few who listen to The High Note, may notice that last week was also episode 73. We did our calculations wrong. It was because Charlie Jones, DJ CJ, our producer, wasn't here and everything basically falls apart when he's not here. But he's come back with a pretty sexy new haircut, actually. And um, he's uh, informed us that we got it wrong last week. So thank you, Charlie. So welcome again to episode uh, 73 of the Hilo. Uh, how was your weekend, Pandora? Didn't you find Saturday the most perfect October day? It was sensational weather. Beautiful sunlight. It was like you could, I was walking through Regent's Park. And I was like, I Gasming away, knowing you. Gasming away, thinking I could not dream up. A Wearing more... a knee-high boot and a beret. You know me so Fondling well. Fondling a conker in your pocket. Listening to an inspirational podcast. I was doing exactly that. Did you even shave your knees for the occasion? Um, I, I, yes, I did shave my knees. <laughs> I did shave my knees. <laughs> How was your Saturday on the perfect October day? I went to my last wedding of the season. Um, October that, wedding, very chic, I think. Very chic, last of the season and in that glorious weather. And there was another glorious wedding on Friday, one that I was barely expecting to even call a royal wedding and one that I didn't even think would be televised. And yet I think I loved it even more than Harry and Meghan's. It was more jam-packed full of great fashion, juicy tidbits and the most random celebrity guest lineup I've ever seen. Someone on Twitter said the guest list read like an announcement for the next series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Except that this is one occasion when all the celebrities wanted to get into here. I was thinking, is there a single celebrity that would be asked that would say no? They're all absolutely gagging to be beloved by the royals, aren't they? Can we take a moment just to analyse, how do Eugenie and Jack know all those people? Because it was really the great and the good. It was the most random selection of ages and different genres and different jobs that they did. How are they such a starry couple, do you think? They had 850 guests, which is 250 more than Meghan and Harry. And there's been some criticism on that. Some commentators suggested that it was driven by Prince Andrew, who wanted to pay back lots of foreign dignitaries. But unless Ricky Martin, Jimmy Carr (laughs) and Kate Moss are foreign dignitaries, I can't really follow that. And I agree, you do have to wonder how good friends... She bangs, oh she bangs, is with the newlyweds. Where did they meet? Where I can't did Ricky imagine Martin... they frequent the same social scene. I don't think they do. Speaking of attendees, quite riveted why Camilla was not there. Apparently, the Duchess of York was not supportive of the marriage between Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall in 2005. But would they really be that transparent about the feud? The official reason that Camilla wasn't there was because she'd already RSVP'd to a school's harvest 
festival event. That is throwing shade. <laughs> but the royal family, Bob Fergie, never reveals their cards. It would surely be a bit too close a mag for them to be appointed no-show. I'm sorry, I just don't know if I buy the school's harvest festival event. <laughs> There was some great fashion at the wedding. There was Pixie Geldof in her Pepto-Bismol, drapey, capey pink dress, which I thought was beautiful. That's her official fashion commentary. Drapey, capey. That was Celine, or as some people have been hashtagging it, old Celine, as Celine has a new designer who is making really short, unfriendly clothes, whereas the old designer, Phoebe Philo, made such gorgeous, freeing, woman-friendly clothes. I love that bubblegum cape I loved it as well. It was so elegant. Uh, There was Kate Moss in her little 1950s polka dot two-piece that apparently no one can find out who made, which I think is just the most Kate Moss move ever. (laughs) I love Naomi Campbell in her little ostrich feather sleeves. Lots of Amelia Wickstead. The jewellery designer Sabine Getty looked wonderful in candy pink. Amelia Wickstead, hot off the catwalk. The showstopper obviously was Cara Delevingne who wore a suit, a tie, a top hat and a toothpick in her the mouth. The toothpick was almost too much. I know, it was like Bugsy Malone. <laughs> I thought she looked phenomenal. She did. Sophie Wilkinson wrote for Grazia, donning a top hat and tails, the model come actress flouted the tradition that women at weddings wear dresses, coat dresses and fascinators and instead went for full queer androgyny. Kitted out with a tie, a toothpick and cummerbund, she looked like the sort of gangster who very probably buried all the bodies of all her enemies on the way to the church. She looked like the Rat Pack. She looked like she could open a bottle of champagne with a flick of her pinky finger, all this in towering black heels. I think she looked great. The breakout star for me of the wedding had to be Robbie Williams' little daughter, Teddy, who is completely adorable and the spitting image of her dad. She is very gorgeous. I only watched the coverage briefly over my breakfast with Zadie and I didn't even know it was actually on until I turned on ITV. No, me neither. I saw it. But it did confirm my thoughts that I am a royalist. Oh, so you? my mother can die a happy woman. Watching the Queen and Prince Philip carefully totter in the church really moved me. I just thought, God, they... They really do. They show up. They honour their commitments, those two, don't they? Even in their 90s. I also loved that um, Eugenie showed her scoliosis scars in her Peter Pilotto wedding dress. I think Mm -hmm. that was quite a powerful message for other girls with scoliosis. In fact, I saw ex-scoliosis sufferers like the journalist and writer Rosalind Janner very much say on Twitter that they found it inspirational that she wasn't covering up her scars. Yeah, I think that that was wonderful. And I think she looked beautiful. And oh my God, did you see the second dress she wore for the evening? that pose and dress I did it's very booby almost quite conical around the boobs I really liked it maybe I need some conical booby dresses Uh, my favourite moment of the whole wedding is the video footage where Fergie in true fussy mother of the bride fashion is faffing around with the bridesmaids and um, organising them for a photo of the little bridesmaids when Teddy Robbie Williams's daughter shouts are you the queen and Fergie says no and then she persists you're a princess and Fergie replies, yes. And as she walks away, if you listen carefully, she says she says it again to herself, yes, under her breath, as if she's almost convincing herself of it. <laughs> That's amazing. Have you watched it? No, I haven't oh, it's seen that. so funny. She's got an American accent then, Teddy. Yeah, Are she's so queen? cute. <laughs> it's adorable. It's almost like she was just desperately trying to work out like what Fergie's place in the royal family was. That's why it was such a like, heartbreaking sort of metaphor. <laughs> 
It was quite funny that she was a uh, bridesmaid, Robbie Williams' daughter. But anyway. Anyway. Parking the guests from the wedding to Mental Health Awareness Day, which was last Wednesday. We didn't cover it last week, so I just wanted to read a beautiful poem by Brian Bilston that the broadcaster and writer Emma Freud posted on her Instagram that I just loved. It's called Selfie. But he had so many friends, they said, on hearing the news, and they went back through his posts, searching for clues. But no, they could find nothing to explain it away. Just a selfie, smiling and filtered, from that last day. It's a very poignant poem that I actually would suggest that everyone follow him on Instagram. He writes... Some of them are really funny, but some of them are really, really moving poems. And I think it's so... It was so poignant to share that on Mental Health Awareness Day. Never judge a book Mm. by its cover or a person's mental health by their Instagram. Totally. Since we last convened, Strictly also had its highest ever ratings. Which is a surprise to no one. (laughs) I didn't watch it, but apparently Claudia and Tess made a sort of throwaway jokey comment about it at the top and then it wasn't mentioned again. Cha-cha-charing onto the next bit of news. Was that a fluid segue? It was a very loose whim in that link. The Duchess of Sussex and Prince Harry have confirmed that they are having a baby next spring. Speaking of babies, have you seen the baby who's visited all 50 American states? No. This is a classic Pandora news story. Here's a picture of Harper Yates, who's five months old at the North Dakota border. Oh, she's so sweet. She's freaking cute. Her Australian-Canadian parents, Cindy Lim and Tristan Yates, take one at every border when they enter a new state. They've been on a four-month road trip, which is due to finish on October the 18th, when they enter their 50th state of Vermont. Would you ever consider doing that with Zadie, but instead of states going to all British counties? (laughs) Sure, I'll just pause work for four months and get someone else to pay my mortgage whilst I trundle around the... Well, look, Cindy, home Cindy and what's-his-face did, why don't you? Harper is set to be the youngest member of the All 50 States Club. Yeah, it's a club. Wow. Other bulletins for you. There is another People's March Against Brexit this weekend in central London. My friend Alice asks anyone who would like to march on behalf of the LGBT plus community to meet at 11am at the Bomber Command Memorial in Green Park. I am by the seaside this weekend, but I shall be thinking of everyone marching. In lighter news, Fendi made a £750 scarf, which looks like a vulva, and it's my favourite story of 2018. (laughs) The Guardian had a conversation with itself about it, where it said, We should be proud of our bodies. I'm sick and tired of wearing clothes that don't look like vulvas. Okay, the Guardian replied to itself, although I do wonder if there might be a middle ground between being ashamed of your vulva and wearing a giant replica of it around your neck. Question, has this been co-opted by the internet and we've decided it's a vulva or have Fendi marketed it as a vulva jumper? No, 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 they're not marketing it as a vulva. Oh, I thought they were. It's been co-opted by my favourite community on the internet, which are the people who have nothing to do but make (laughs) memes out of commonplace (laughs) objects. It's totally bizarre. The detail that I find most troubling is that... (laughs) is that the head obviously pokes out of the neck pole, so it looks like you're being born. Yes, that's exactly what people are saying, and it's the detail I enjoy the most. Please Google a picture of it, by the way, if you haven't seen it. I've inserted a picture into Dolly in my notes, and I've just been studying it. It's sort of a born-again scarf, so maybe why you have to pay £750 for it is because it's a not only a scarf, it's a transcendental experience which allows you to witness as an adult... The magic of being born, no? 
have to say I don't love the old vulva scarf. I'm not vulvophobic at all. Ask anyone. You just don't want to be born again I just by don't think your scarf. I, no, I don't think I want all right. that. Not for everyone. Maybe just for the uh, more enlightened progressive feminists amongst us. <laughs> With £750. Over in Trump world. God, we need an episode where we don't mention any American politics. And I will strive for that. Next week, Melania gave her most revealing interview yet where she said that she disagreed with her husband's policy of separating parents and children at the Mexican border. She confirmed that her Zara, I really don't care jacket was a comment to the quote unquote left wing fake news media and not the immigrant children she was visiting. And she attested that she is the most bullied woman in the world. She does get quite a lot of shit, but she did marry the biggest toad in the world, so... That wasn't the strangest piece of Trump news for this week, though. Kanye West had a public meeting with Trump at the White House in one of the most bizarre moments of Trump's presidency so far, and that's really saying something. Trump stayed unusually quiet while Kanye pontificated on subjects such as masculinity, hydrogen-powered planes and the Democrats. They've met before, but this one was fully televised and was almost like a press conference in itself. And people are divided over this nutty interlude in the Oval Office. Some people think that the most nutty bit was that you could clearly see Kanye's passcode as recorded by various media outlets as he unlocked his phone, which was a super security-conscious series of zeros. Other people think it was when Kanye, wearing a Make America Great Again cap, Mm. said that he felt like the cap made him feel like Superman. Made in China, incidentally. Other people thought that it was when he talked about his hydrogen-powered jet, the iPlane 1. Pretty sure Apple would have something to say about that. And Trump asked Jared Kushner if they could destroy the Air Force One and build the iPlane instead. Kanye compared himself to a fine wine that the president was lucky enough to be drinking and when he finished his soliloquy um, a 10 minute soliloquy Trump was actually speechless the last time we discussed Kanye and Trump various people were saying that we had to be careful collectively Mm. how we discuss Kanye as he clearly had mental health issues I don't know if he does or doesn't this has only ever been speculation and I don't think we can shy away from discussions of what he does in the public arena especially if he's one of very few pop culture icons being entertained for almost a full hour in the Oval Office by the President Trump is such a star fucker the fact that this interview was almost an hour long think of all the people all the humanitarians and activists that he could have given an hour to and fair enough Kanye did go in to talk about African-American issues, to talk about, you know, weighty issues. But what's come away, the press coverage, was of the iPlane 1 and Kanye being a fine wine and Mm. how he felt like Superman in his Make America Great Again cap. We've also had emails from conspiracy theorists that Kanye could be in the middle of a sustained, long-term performance art piece. Oh, God, everything's performance art now. This podcast is performance art. What do you think? I'm going to eat an olive now and it's performance art. Many public figures who have previously apologised for him or defended him or supported him on this subject have now sort of turned on him and said this is becoming kind of unforgivable. Comedian Dave Chappelle remained supportive, however, saying, that's my brother, I love him, I support him, but, you know, I don't have to agree with everything that he says. I just trust him as a person of intent. But, yeah, he shouldn't say all that shit. The journalist Nadifa Mohammed wrote a piece for The Guardian in which she compares Kanye to the archetypal Uncle Tom figure in history and says of Uncle Tom, there is something of the orphan child about him, desperate for love and care, wherever it may come from. There is the air of the orphan child about Kanye West too. 
Since the death of his mother, he appears unmoored, lost in the fantasy land that his Kardashian in-laws live within Los Angeles. He is hurt that, on return to his hometown of Chicago, Drake's tracks are played more on the radio than his own. West demands that his support of Trump be perceived as an act of independent thought, his escape from the prison of Democratic Party support that binds most African Americans. I think there is a growing feeling of sympathy or concern towards Kanye West and disgust at Trump using him to garner favour. That's the mood I'm feeling more and more now. Here's another conspiracy theory for you. I read in a highly esteemed publication that apparently Kris Jenner and the powers that be behind the Kardashian juggernaut are saying that Kim has to temporarily separate from Kanye whilst he's making these statements. Mm, it has um, to be very damaging to her. To her mm. to her brand. Mm. Um, and then they can, like, sort of stage a reconciliation when Kanye stops wearing his Superman cape. Either way, I'm bored of them entertaining one another at our expense. Meet mm. up in your own time. We don't need to know about it. Yeah, anymore. yeah, I agree. Anyway, the top-selling 40 albums of all time have been revealed, Dolly, by Radio oh, 2. And I wonder, as a muso... How many of them you can guess? What do you think's number one? Um, I'm kind of obsessed with these lists that are made. I think it might be Thriller. Thriller by Michael Jackson was always very high. Or it could be, I know Adele is always surprisingly very high in those charts. I'll say Thriller. Or actually, no, uh, maybe What's the Story, Morning Glory? No, it is Sergeant Pepper. Oh, bugger! I thought that was too obvious. That's number one. Number two is Adele, 21. Rumours. Is Rumours on there? Number three is Oasis Morning Glory. Yeah. Number four, Pink Floyd, The Dark Side oh, of the Moon. Oh, buggy, I should have Number said five that. is Michael Jackson with Thriller. Pretty good, doll. Number six, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. Mm. Number seven, Michael Jackson, Bad. Number eight, Fleetwood Mac, Rumours. Number nine, Amy Winehouse, Back, Back to Black. Black. Number ten, Adele, again, with 25. Mm. I did quite well there. I never yeah, you did. did well in quizzes. You did. Oh, music I'd expect you to do pretty well. Can I tell you a good story about Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club that yeah, has, has nothing to do with the Beatles right, okay. and a lot to do with me? Yes. Um, <laughs> when I was a story producer on Made in Chelsea, me and the other story producers, my friends Jack and Ed, just for a little joke between ourselves, it was never... I mean, the channel sometimes saw it, but it was mainly just to, to make ourselves laugh. We would name at the end of every episode the episode with a sort of punning title. And when we got to the end of... And we would, like, labour over it. And when we got to the end of an episode where Spencer had gone to Spain and he'd been dumped, I think, I called it Sergeant Spencer's Barcelona Hearts Club. Ah, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your best pun, actually. There were other great ones. When they went on a skiing holiday, we called Did it... Did that go out? Was that what the episode was called? No, no. It was only ever just a joke to you guys. Oh. When they went on a skiing holiday, we came up with Verbier Enthusiasm. have to say, these aren't... Curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, these aren't going down as well as I thought they would. I thought I'd fucking take the house down with these. Anyway. CJ's doing, like, a quiet laugh. He's doing, he's like, doing a, a laugh with his nose. You know when people go... He's doing a polite sniffle. Sorry, Dolly. In the, what's, in, what's in Ye Old Mailbag this week? In Ye Old Mailbag, we got a highly informative and brilliant message from Jude. 
Hello, Dolly and Pandora. I know you championed repeal the 8th during the referendum, and I'm sure you'll know that women in Northern Ireland still don't have access to safe, legal abortions. In reality, what this means is that there are around 1 million women in the UK who pay into the NHS, are governed by Westminster, and yet do not have access to a crucial aspect of healthcare. Instead, they face some of the most punitive abortion laws in the world. I'm currently seven months pregnant with a little girl and I desperately want her to grow up in a country where she can make choices about her own medical care wherever she lives in the UK. Abortion is a criminal act across the UK due to a law put in place in 1861 before women could vote. The 1967 Abortion Act put in place provision for abortion under certain circumstances but doesn't cover Northern Ireland and means a woman forced to buy abortion pills online, for instance, because she can't access a clinic because she lives in Northern Ireland or because she's in an abusive relationship and is not able to, can still be imprisoned. This should be a medical issue regulated at point of issue, not a criminal one targeting women unable to access care. There is a cross-party bill going to Parliament on the 23rd of October to decriminalise abortion across the UK, including Northern Ireland. It would remove abortion from criminal law, allowing abortion to be regulated in the same way as all other routine medical procedures. It wouldn't change the medical regulation of abortion, but would crucially decriminalise it in Northern Ireland, allowing medics to perform safe abortions in line with current medical regulations and bring in new protections for vulnerable women and victims of abuse. Hilo listeners can support by writing to their MP, asking them to support the bill using the pre-written email here. It's www.wetrustwomen.org.uk forward slash northern dash Ireland or by donating to BPAS, who as ever doing amazing work in this area. She's also given us some links for more information, which we will include in the show notes. And she finishes off. Finally, I leave you with an incredible quote from Sheila Hetty's book, Motherhood. This is a quote I've actually flagged on the podcast before when I was dipping into the book and I'm very happy to read it again because I think it's a really important thing to keep front of mind and actually really um, applies to our conversation prompted by Farah Store about having children yeah. and having it all, which is a topic that's still very much sparking conversation in the high lows inbox, yeah. isn't it? We're continuing yeah. to get really interesting letters. Thank you so much to everyone. This is the quote from Sheila's book. Why are we still having children? Why was it important for the doctor that I did? A woman must have children because she must be occupied. When I think of all the people who want to forbid abortions, it seems it can only mean one thing. Not that they want this new person in the world, but that they want that woman to be doing the work of child rearing more than they want her to be doing anything else. There is something threatening about a woman who is not occupied with children. There is something at loose ends feeling about such a woman. What is she going to do instead? What sort of trouble will she make? It's a very radical book, Motherhood by Sheila Hetty. I'm sure that lots of people won't necessarily agree with it, but it's very thought-provoking and really interesting. And thank you very much, Jude, for reminding us of that incredibly important issue. Thank you. Pandora, tell me what you have been reading and watching and listening to this week. I've been doing a lot of reading and researching this week, and whilst I putter around, I've been very much enjoying a category of music called French Chill on Spotify. Zoot Odious name, gorgeous genre. Listen to this, it's called Jardin d'Hiver, sung by Stacey Kent. Ma robe à fleurs sous la pluie Plus d'attendre 
I love Stacey Kent. I've seen her at Ronnie Scott's about four times. Have you? Yeah. So you love French chill too? She's just a beautiful jazz singer. And something that I think will warm your heart is for my 15th birthday, because I'm the youngest in the year, by the time that my like landmark birthdays would come round... No one really cared about them anymore because everyone had already celebrated all the 16th birthdays or the 13th birthdays. And my mum, being like the most wonderful mum of all time, knew that this was like, this was bugging me a bit. So on my 15th birthday, she, I loved jazz growing up. And on my 15th birthday, she did like a surprise birthday dinner with me where we all went to Ronnie Scott's when we were 15 because she knew that is so trendy for a 15 I know I'm still eating dough balls at Pinterest <laughs> Express <laughs> but we went to go see Stacey Kent and it was after she'd done this amazing album called The Boy Next Door and it's because my mum knew by the time that my 16th came around no one would care so she got in ahead of everyone isn't that nice oh well it's an absolutely gorgeous category of music there's loads of others that I made a note of that I love and it's just often like very relaxing music so the kind of music that I can listen to while I'm reading because obviously it can't be anything that's too distracting often that music can be quite maudlin or quite pensive yes and it's such French chill is such uplifting and restorative yeah gentle joyous and it's great when you find that music that means that you can be surrounded by a beautiful sound but not but still get on with your thinking or your reading or whatever yeah Thank you, Spotify, for uh, doing it for me. <laughs> I really enjoyed Philip Ellis, who is a brilliant writer I've recently become aware of, on Man Repeller, writing about how he doesn't want to be your gay BFF. Oh, interesting. It all started, he says, aged 15, when he told a girl at a party he was gay, and she squealed, OMG, will you be my gay best friend? My Stanford Blatch. There seems to be this idea, he writes, underlined by shows like Will and Grace and other early aughts media that straight women are innate allies to gay men, that requesting someone be your gay sidekick should be seen as complimentary or even a kind of acceptance rather than ignorant or insensitive. It's not that there isn't some truth to the cliche. I believe that the friendship between a gay man and a straight woman can be a unique and special thing, arising from a commonality of experience. But, he says, it has become a sort of trope. And he talks about the gay best friend role in films. If a queer character exists in this fictional ecosystem, it is to respond to the emotional or sartorial needs of a straight protagonist. The only character expected to do more emotional labour than the gay sidekick in these sorts of stories is the sassy black friend. (laughs) It's just a really interesting, funny, well-written piece. It's not kind of malicious, his writing, but Mm. it's, um, it's just very sharp and on the money and mm. I really really enjoyed that piece and I will link that in the show notes I also thoroughly enjoyed dipping into a book of friends criticism oh which, I just got sent that book it does a cultural deep dive into everything from the making of it to the reaction to it and how it has and hasn't stood the test of time some bits of interest I highlighted for you dear listeners by 2010 11 million people in the UK alone had gotten the Rachel haircut Oh my god, which which she hated. Yeah. If an audience didn't laugh at a joke or the joke didn't land properly, the writers would rewrite and reshoot on the spot, which often meant that the live record went on until 1 or 2am. And if some of the audience got sleepy, they swapped them in for a fresh batch of audience. Oh, I didn't know that. And contrary to public belief, at $1 million per episode, the Friends cast were not the highest paid soap stars on TV at the time. Kelsey Grammer negotiated $1.6 million per episode for Frasier. I also thought that this was a really neat, interesting bit of 
pop culture criticism about the epoch in which Friends begun. And I'm just going to read that out. Friends begun following the power-suited baby boomer 80s. By the mid-90s, writes Kelsey Miller, the mood had lightened up. The economy was in good shape and growing at a steady clip. Both the Cold and Gulf Wars had officially ended, and though there was still war and poverty and all manner of horrors in the world, many Americans had the privilege of not knowing too much about it. In short, a media executive named Lauren Zalalsnik says, It was the Clinton years. We decided that the world was pretty good and getting better, and everyone should discover a $4 cup of coffee at Central Perk. It was an era of attainable luxury, when people suddenly started ordering a venti, fat-free, no-foam latte instead of just a coffee, fashioned upon the appearance of normality as white t-shirts and relaxed-fit jeans supplanted the bright, boxy, dry-clean-only look of the previous decade. Viewers no longer craved the full-blown fantasy of 80s television, nor did they want thinky dramas like My So-Called Life. They wanted comedy, but not absurdity. They wanted characters whose lives they could relate to and whose clothes they could covet, but also conceivably find at a mall. Gone was Dynasty's Alexis Carrington with her fur dressing gown and her 48-room mansion. And in came Monica Geller with her Gap cardigan and her two-bedroom rent-controlled apartment. Unrealistic? Yes, but not impossible. I love the dialogue about how a massive part of why Friends was so successful is the, is the time that it landed. Yeah. So another bit that I didn't read out that I was aware of before I read the book, but that talks about it more, is that when Friends came out, they were sort of the first generation that was solvent, not living at home and not married. Yes. Because the kind of traditional journey had been live with your parents and then get married and live with them. Mm. You'd never had that period of living with friends, living with flatmates. Like, having flatmates was quite revolutionary, which I know is mad for us to consider It's, it's weird. I was actually watching... I'm writing a script at the moment about people in their 20s living together, so I'm re-watching quite a lot of friends just for kind of research and reminding me of those dynamics. And I was watching last night the episode where Rachel moves out of Monica's flat... And it's so moving. Yeah, it's, it's really just, sad. It's true then as it is now. And I have to live with a boy. <laughs> but that moment where Monica goes into the empty room, I mean, God, I know that feeling. It was, it was, it was really, really moving. It's, it kind of is transgenerational, those, those stories. Absolutely. Um, what do you think, what would you say the best or most popular episode of all time is of Friends? Um, the bottleneck episode when they're all late for getting ready, where they, it all happens in real time. The one where Rachel goes commando at the end. Yeah. I'm going to catch up on my correspondence. Yeah. I didn't even know what correspondence was when I read that. In that sexy uh, sea green dress. Just goes, mm. <laughs> I think up there is when they do the quiz. And oh, they I lose love the quiz. The flat. So whenever my husband, I ask him what one of his friends does and he doesn't know, he always tells me they're a transponster. Yeah. And the 12 <laughs> category of towels, guest towels, fancy guest towels, <laughs> and the fact they get it right. And then when they swap apartments and Chana just comes in... On the on white the do- dog. <laughs> that's a great episode. It is an absolutely Because that's episode. the beating heart of the show, isn't it? It's, it's communal. how well they know each yeah, other. Yeah, communal living. That said, I think it made a lot of people feel quite shit about their friend groups because no one knows each other yeah. as well as they know each other. Yeah. It was like excessive knowledge and another thing that this book's quite good at is pointing out 
because I didn't realise how in tandem or how led by the viewers the show was. And they really were responding to the audience. Mm. And sometimes they took risks Mm. with the audience. And sometimes they got quite meta with their audience. And apparently um, a bit where they tried to be quite meta or kind of you know, nod to the fact that it was sort of hilarious that six people were constantly sitting on the same sofa in the Mm. same coffee shop in the middle of the day is when all of them walk in, see other people sitting on the sofa in the coffee shop and just walk out again. (laughs) The idea that, like, if the scene wasn't set properly, then friends couldn't exist. Yeah, there are these kind of quite self-aware nods throughout, even when they got Brad Pitt in. And the bit apparently when, yeah, when they get Brad Pitt yeah. when they were dating in real life. Yeah. It's a really interesting book. I don't think you have to be a, a diehard Friends fan. I'm not a diehard Friends fan, but that conversation with you does reveal that we both know quite a lot. I think it's it, so in the fabric of our, of our, for our generation of growing up. I really, I don't think it's even a case of fan or not fan. It's just, it was the only thing that was always on. And it's still huge streaming online. Yeah. Um, and I think Netflix acquired the rights and it's still yeah. one of their most watched shows. One of my favourite tweets of all time is when everyone was losing their shit. Because it came onto Netflix. When Netflix announced, someone tweeted saying, finally, somewhere to watch the TV programme for <laughs> it is always on TV. I know. Ollie's watching it all the time. Um, I also loved Hanya Yanagihari on the Refinery29 podcast talking about changing magazine journalism and on taking the job as the editor of New York Times' magazine, T Magazine, after having written the epic 800-page hit novel, A Little Life. Her response to the critics in the literary world, who were very surprised at her taking this editorship and sort of scoff, you know, being a bit snooty about the fact that she was taking a magazine job and not immediately writing another book, was why scoff at art and culture? She said that absolutely mandatory to the way we live and the way we write. And here, here, I say, I actually found her really inspirational in a lot of different ways. I think you'd love... um, Hearing about how she leads her life, Dolly, she leads such an individual, independent life. She doesn't want a partner. She doesn't want a family. She doesn't go out at night. And when she started her job at T Magazine, a luxury magazine that probably required quite a lot of um, evening socialising and, you know, meeting and greeting, she told her managing editor when she started her editorship that she does not go out at night. And she said, yeah, it was something that was considered quite radical, but Mm. I don't think it's a huge uh, clause. Mm. And that was my thing I said you know I I don't go out at night she goes out one night a week on a Friday with the same friend to one of three places god that's interesting and when she was writing her book she wrote 9pm to midnight every evening for 18 months and that's how she wrote A Little Life and she also said which I found really inspirational um, is that you should completely ignore the myth of novel writing when you're writing a book she said see it as a numbers game Literally, the only thing you should focus on is getting to the end. And she says, the only difference between a good writer and a published writer is finishing. I could not agree more. And she said, which I really loved, the only other good thing is there's no age limit to writing a book. You can write a book at any time in your life. Yeah. It was absolutely That sounds like a fascinating interview. It was brilliant. And um, she's a really cool woman. As I said, lots of inspirational stuff. Lives her life in a very unique way. Lastly, I read 
a provocative and prescient book called The XX by Angela Chadwick about ovum to ovum fertilization, as it's called in the book. Two women having a biological baby without the need for a sperm donor. Under this scientific breakthrough, same sex partners Rosie and Jules can have a biological baby, but only a female baby. And the political fallout of the clinical trial threatens not only their relationship and family, but the baby itself. Just this week scientists in China confirmed that two female mice mm. had had babies so it's not as dystopian yeah. as you think Dialogue Books which is an imprint headed up by Charmaine Lovegrove a publisher dedicated to bringing more diverse voices and conversations into book publishing calls this genre of fiction new utopia a new genre of speculative fiction about a world that we actually might want to live in rather than a warning which is mm. obviously what dystopian fiction is yeah I didn't think the XX was brilliantly written, if I'm honest, but I did think that the topics covered and the central narrative was very interesting and very thought-provoking, so I would recommend it for that. Dolly, what have you been enjoying this week? Finally watched Killing Eve. Oh, and did you love it? I fucking loved did it. Did you binge on all eight episodes at once? Yeah, I had a, I duv- you had a duvet day. God, that's intense. I know. It was intense, actually. It was too intense. There's a particularly tense episode between the two protagonists and I'd just, I could, I was so hooked on it, I couldn't be bothered to go to Sainsbury, so I ordered a delivery and the doorbell rang and I just couldn't face going to the door. So you didn't go and get your delivery? He just, he just gave it to me through the window. I was too nervous. I just couldn't bear what would be at the door. I was that's how affected I was. Jodie Comer with a I was so paranoid I couldn't answer to the lovely and friendly delivery man from a Wagamama. I wouldn't have been able to watch that at night on my own. Yeah, it was pretty it was very intense. My god, it's so good. She's it, it, I mean, do you think it is one of the best things you've seen? One hundred percent. It's I think the best Happy birthday! I think it's the best televised thriller such an end joke isn't it happy birthday no one at home well everyone's bloody watched Killing Eve I actually made a joke on Sunday I was like oh fine I should probably just like finally do Killing Eve so I went on Twitter and I tweeted has anyone heard any good things about the TV programme Killing Eve was everyone like did people get it or did you have people being like it's really good Dolly yeah some people got it and then I got tweets from people being like fabulous show great writing I'm like yeah I know (laughs) What else have you been enjoying? I also watched The Bisexual on... Oh, yeah, I read read about that in The Observer recently. Yeah, Laura Snapes recommended that we watch Uh it. Thank you very much, Laura. It's a Channel 4 comedy drama about a woman discovering that she's bisexual. It's created by and stars Desiree Akavan, who is a brilliant American-Iranian writer and actor who made and starred in a very funny film called Appropriate Behaviour a few years back, which is also a kind of exploring um, bisexuality. I still really want to watch that. I need to remember to watch that. Where it's... can we find that, by the way, for anyone that hasn't seen it? Is it on Netflix? I'm not sure. Definitely didn't stream it illegally from Putlucker. <laughs> um, I'll try and find the link. Uh, so... The Bisexual is a really interesting exploration of sexuality, dating in London. Anyone who's been single in the last 10 years um, in a city, anyone who's used apps, I think it will it will really resonate for you. Um, it's about the differences and the similarities of dating men and dating women. 
Maxine Peake is in it. Um, she plays her long-term on-off partner. And she, for me, is the real star of it. She's just mesmerising, I think. And what I would say is I watched it. This is really embarrassing because it's going to show just quite how long I spent on the sofa on Sunday. I watched it straight after Killy. <laughs> Which meant that I think I found it quite slow because it's like a relationship show and not much happens. It's still fascinating and very funny, but it's more observing kind of human behaviour and sexual behaviour rather than any sort of big, juicy, compelling plot. Having just watched Killing Eve, I think I found it... You didn't have a break after all that telly. I ate my ramen. (laughs) Um, I think... I found it quite. I think I found it quite slow in comparison. But I did finish watching the series yesterday, and I think it's great uncharted territory. You've just been binging the hell. <laughs> I think Have you been on Twitter the whole time? I need to go look at your timeline. Um, yes, because so, quite often when you do binges of watching stuff, you're very active on Twitter. Yeah, I have to involve everyone else. Yeah, it's yeah. a sort of quite nuts stream of consciousness. So I'm going to go and do a deep dive. Yeah, there was a bit of that. <laughs> Um, so yes I recommend that you can watch that on all four it's um, bisexuality is something that's not really explored that much and I think people are still very minimising and patronising about what bisexuality is and that's that's a topic that's kind of that she looks into through the characters and the storylines so it feels like uncharted territory uh, and it's also the way that she depicts a certain type of heterosexual male that you meet on the dating scene is very, very accurate and very, very funny as someone who has encountered a fair few of them. I'm also very happy that two of my favourite podcasts are back with two absolute bangers of return episodes. There's Nigella Lawson on Table Manners, which is as heavenly as you would think it would be. And David Sedaris is on Adam Buxton. You must be thrilled. I know. That Mr. I was so Buckles happy. or whatever he's called is back. Doctor Buckles. Doctor Buckles is back, and it's a great episode. Not only because David Sedaris is such a funny, acerbic, eccentric, wonderfully subversive, and kind of charmingly bizarre character, but because you can tell that Adam Buxton feels real simpatico with him. You, can, I think he thinks that they're quite similar in terms of the way that they look at the world and the things they've experienced, and it's a really lovely dynamic to listen to. Adam Buxton's like a sort of giggling schoolboy after everything that David Sedaris says. He's really sort of fanboying. Um, it, as a warning for squeamish listeners, it is kind of a gross episode. It's scatological. There's a lot of talk about gouging out eyeballs, um, but somehow it's not puerile and it's very interesting. I particularly liked the way that they talked about their experiences of being short men, which I found very self-aware and funny, uh, and I loved how honest they were about it. David Sedaris speaks very compellingly about how he's become less and less interested in hearing about people's feelings and he's much more interested in, in the events of a situation and what people thought about them, mm, which is actually very relevant, very relevant for a topic that we're discussing later. Have you read David Sedaris's, I think his latest book of short stories is Calypso. Have you read that Yes, one? no, I haven't. That's but Adam Buxton my, says it's brilliant. My reading list, yeah. Um, and he also talks hilariously about the often fraught and um, very tense exchanges that he has with his adoring readers that he meets at signings. So it's a great episode. Highly recommend that. Thank you again to Laura Snapes for recommending that I listen to Kira Knightley's episode of the Awards Chatter podcast. Have you ever listened to that podcast? No. 
I kind of, I had reservations about listening to Kira Knightley, but because I trust Laura's taste so much, she said, I think that you would really enjoy this. I kind of, I did turn on to it. And I'm so glad that I did. And I realised actually throughout the interview how unfair and how snooty and actually deeply misogynistic my assumptions about Kira Knightley have been but over I the have, years. I have been so confused my whole life as to why... There's such a collective dislike for Kira Knight. When she was in Love Actually, people were almost like, you know when the poor girl has to deliver a line, not mm. her own thing, and she has to go, I look quite pretty. Mm. And everyone just mm. absolutely hated it. And I have to say, I'm very confused as to why people hated her so much. I genuinely think it's because she's really beautiful and people couldn't do with it. Yeah, she talked, she, it's, it's such an honest interview. It's probably the most honest interview I've ever heard with a Hollywood actress. And she talks through why people hated her so much and the fact that the way she was treated in the press and particularly the way that she was harassed by paps it meant that she had a mental breakdown i was gonna say i read this weekend in the newspaper yeah and she talks about it in great depth and 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 how she you know she was like a child actor that's always what she's wanted to do and she was 17 i think in Bendit, yeah she I was think. 17 and she talks about the fact that in those years you're kind of in this hinterland between childhood and adulthood and you're desperately trying to work out who you are, your sexual identity, how you want to dress, um, you know, what you think. And when people are pulling it apart and making you feel like you're not a part of the gang, she talks about the profound effect that it had on her. Um, it's It made me really like her. And actually, it made me really embarrassed for how much I kind of piled in on Kira Knightley hatred when I was younger for, for reasons I don't really know to be honest she talks about her mouth really in a really funny way about um how people became obsessed with her pout and she talks about her kind of alleged vanity and she admits to a certain level of vanity um she's very transparent about how she likes making money which I always really like hearing women be honest about um she talks about how she was so nervous about doing Pirates of the Caribbean and apparently when she was doing Love Actually she told Richard Curtis that she'd just done a pirate movie that she thinks is going to end her career before it's even started because it's such an embarrassing thing to do um, so yeah it was a really great episode I actually listened to it twice that's how good I thought it was God I'll listen to that also my favourite couple to Google image after Britney and Justin in the early noughties was uh, still is actually Jamie Dornan and Kira Knightley because it is such an insight into the fashion of that time. Let me see. Have a look at this. And just before I show it to you, I want you to take in the seatbelt belt, <laughs> the excessively baggy jeans, um, denim mini, mini, mini skirts, Ugg boots, Western belts, slogan T-shirts. Over to you. Oh, my God. That could not be more naughties if it tried. And actually... They are all pretty um, naughties. Here's another humdinger. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Floppy beanie, floppy pirate boots. Floppy beanie, floppy pirate boots, exactly. She's very sweet about her ex-boyfriends, actually. She, she says, um, it's in reference to Rupert Friend, who she was with when she had the breakdown, but she says she's always been very lucky with boyfriends and she's always had very, very nice boyfriends. Pandora's just shown me another picture. Look how low slung the jeans are. Those jeans are too low slung with flip flops. Very nice. So yeah, it's a great episode, and I'd actually like to insert a clip here um, of when she's talking about a period when the Paps were harassing her at a time where there was so much capital in capturing women breaking down and so much money to be made. Oh, I mean, literally, men shouting at me, calling me a whore. 
I mean, the paparazzi are doing. Yeah, it? because it was a point. You know, that point was you had Amy Winehouse, mm-hmm. you had Britney Spears having a mental breakdown, mm-hmm. you had you know it was big money to get pictures of women falling apart because you wanted them to be sexy, but you wanted to punish them for that sexuality, and that's a point in men and women's life that you're exploring sexuality for the first time with your clothing, with your behaviour, with everything. You know, and suddenly there was a lot of money to get these girls if you like, quote unquote, behaving badly. And if you weren't breaking down in front of them, then it was worth their while to make you break down in front of them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It may have felt for a while like us millennials were going to be the youngest generation forever, But alas, no, there's a new generation in town. They're called Generation Z and new stats in the news this week shows perhaps the biggest generational divide between them and millennials is that nearly 30% of people between the ages of 16 and 24 do not drink at all. The research published in the journal BMC Public Health found that more than 25% of young people class themselves as non-drinkers. The figure has increased from 18% in 2005. In 2005, Pandora was a fresher at Leeds Uni and I was doing my A-levels. You always have to bring up the fact that you're younger than me. (laughs) My point was, needless to say, neither of us contributed to that 18%. (laughs) In fact, I don't remember anyone my age not drinking when I was between the ages of 18 and 24. Do you? Cannot think of one. No. Actually, I did know a girl vaguely who couldn't drink as she had glandular fever but that's temporary she was like a unicorn i remember us literally <laughs> marveling about how she was still able to go to a party yeah. without drinking yeah. I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that now but yes it was very very unusual i was at leeds university where a shot of tequila was a pound and tequila girls who dressed in very skimpy clothing probably wouldn't pass muster now wafted around the clubs encouraging you to get obliterated Were you surprised by these statistics? I found myself really surprised. I know that Generation Z are more mindful than us and perhaps more informed and therefore more kind of straight-edged, but I thought total sobriety would have been a minority. 30% is an enormous proportion, I think. I was surprised at how high it was, yes, but I wasn't surprised that there'd been a big uptick in sobriety because it fits with the generation... Okay, you call them Generation Z, I go with Z. So we're just going to have to agree to disagree here because I can't do it. The Generation Zers that I talk to or hear about, my friends with teenage siblings or siblings who are at uni often tell me how the pressure has completely shifted. It's now not to drink and to experiment with drugs, it's to work out in the gym and to look great on Instagram. And also, perhaps because Instagram holds such a visual record of the night, they don't dare go for it, quote-unquote, in the way previous students or young people did. I've said it once and I'll say it again. I am so glad that the only thing that existed when I was at university was Facebook. Do you know what we used to do, though, at Exeter? I wonder if you did this. We all got those little digital cameras... And we'd all yeah, take yeah, them yeah. out in our clutch bags. I was the unofficial photographer. Yeah. 
You'd, and you do, you would do sort of selfies in the loo, but it would be like on a flash. You wouldn't get to see them straight afterwards. Yeah, I'd be quite careful which pictures I put up. Whereas, like some pain in the ass would just upload the whole thing yeah. from a terrible night out. Upload them all and would not do any damage control on that on that visual record. I remember when Sophie Wilkinson got the first ever iPhone. At, at I did. I queued up. <laughs> I queued up. I was one of the first people in Leeds to have an iPhone. I queued up outside the store from 4am. Did the same with the Kate Moss for Topshop collection. Amazing. But I remember we were all sitting in the, in a club's like smoking area at Exeter and Sophie came in holding the iPhone and everyone crowded around her. I remember it was people so, doing that with me and I spent yeah. £300 on it. I used the money that I'd made from selling Kate Moss for Topshop on eBay for a marked up price. That's the most millennial mid naughty story I think so I've heard. What happened? Pandora and I are both in our 30s, therefore firmly out of this category, which I shall try very hard not to cry about and hijack the segment, making it all about my various neuroses. Yeah. So we thought we'd talk to a couple of Generation Z women to hear about their experiences with alcohol. First up, I spoke to Scarlett Curtis earlier today, journalist and author of the best-selling new book of essays, Feminists Don't Wear Pink, about being a barely drinker. How long have you been a person who doesn't drink that much? I mean, kind of forever, like since I started drinking. I just don't love it and it makes me quite anxious. And Well, I don't know. I think that it makes me anxious, but I actually think that my anxiety stops me drinking. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think it makes me that anxious, but I think I get so anxious about how anxious it's going to make me and then I don't drink. And what do you think the anxiety is about? Is it about your behaviour altering? Is it about feeling physically unwell the next day? Yeah, I think feeling unwell the next day, feeling a bit out of control. And I also think another reason maybe that in general Gen Z don't think is like there's this whole thing about everyone being so busy and like having so many things to do. And I think we are a bit overwhelmed, whether it's with like school and social media and jobs and everything and I just get worried about not feeling good the next day. I always say like I was the the financial crash happened when I was 12 and I literally went into a history class and they were like okay none of you are ever going to get a job Mm. and I think that's a very common thing for people my age and I think we are much less likely to get jobs straight out of university and when I was at university everyone was insanely worried and you know felt like they had to really be doing something now in order to guarantee that this education was going to be paying off. So I do think that's kind of really deep-rooted in a lot of people. And is that the same for most of your friends? Are most of your friends quite mindful about drinking? No, they re- they really aren't. And I think it's good you're talking to both because I'd say it's, it's really not super common, probably more common than it was. Like, I'm definitely not a freak. Whereas I think, like, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it would have been, like, very odd. Something else I would say that I was just thinking of, and I'm not an example of this, although obviously I've got lots of friends that are, but my mum, all her dad, her dad and her dad's friends, all her drinking problems, but just died or didn't get them sorted out. And all my parents' friends are in AA. I think we, we, re- we might be the first generation that really, really know that language without having been through it. I spoke to the writer and poet Charlie Cox, hailed as social media's answer to Carol Ann Duffy and author of the poetry collection She Must Be Mad. She is a Gen Zer who does drink. 
I definitely drink when I'm more anxious um, and stressed. It's definitely a thing that happens when if I've had a really long, difficult day, I will absolutely have a glass of wine or five. Um, and it's, it's it has been something that I've learned from looking at those around me and how my peers have dealt with things. And it's definitely learned behaviour, so much so that last year I took four months off drinking. Um, not because I wanted to, but because I was suddenly so hyper aware of how much we were all getting drunk all of the time or how and why I was reaching for a drink as opposed to dealing with something or going through something mm. organically without that as an, an aid. Um, but I, I do think that that is, that is fairly, fairly similar to quite a lot of my friends. You know, if you put those statistics up against, um, you know, what we're seeing in the rise in mental health issues and mental illness I think that you know it is is quite an obvious sadly um, way to deal with your problems it's it's an age-old crutch I don't think that I realized that I was drinking so much because I was so stressed because I didn't have time to think about my actions it also looked quite glossy it looked like I was having lots of fun such an interesting mix of thoughts there I hadn't thought about the productivity factor which seems to be important in Scarlett's case Mm. the fact that a hangover can slow down your work the next day and this is obviously a generation that's very busy very work focused Perhaps it's the multi-hyphen career thing, which takes a lot of juggling of different projects. And I understand wanting to not feel physically unwell the next day and that getting in the way of work. During the week, I can't because I just cannot work the next day. I can barely even answer an email with a hangover now. Um, And so I totally understand that. But I have to say, I didn't get there until my late 20s. The work being more important than the hangover, potentially negating the work... That took a while for me to realise. Until then, I just didn't mind. I worked through the hangover and I ate an enormous prep baguette at my desk. (laughs) I think it's very impressive that people as young as 21 have this kind of foresight into the well-being of their future self tomorrow morning. It's all completely true as well about the hangover. With a baby in my workload, I literally don't have time for a hangover at the moment. Mm. I actively avoid them. And it does deflate me a bit because you can't really go for the night in that sort of Soho way of yore. That said, I drink less than ever now, not just because of productivity, but because how much worse my sleep and my anxiety is on a hangover. So it's kind of like multifaceted for me, the reduction in drinking. Anxiety is something that both Scarlett and Charlie brought up when we were discussing this. Yeah, they have differing attitudes to angst and booze. Scarlett doesn't drink because of it, whereas Charlie thinks she drinks more when particularly anxious. I think that's quite a common polarity. Mm. I know people who drink more when they're feeling all over the place or a bit low or very worried about things. And then I know people who contain themselves both physically and literally so they don't drink they go out much less and when they're in that sort of headspace they don't want to be in that physical space and I think it depends on you as a person actually despite what the statistics say yeah I think it's very personal I think it's interesting that Charlie says she used alcohol as a method of escape because that's definitely that was definitely why my friends and I drank through our 20s the and and escape sounds too um dramatic dramatic and absolute it will it wasn't to um, escape who we were or go to a place of oblivion it was more just to kind of get out of a 
funk of worrying thoughts you know and you have a kind of well that's what anxiety is isn't it when you're in a kind of loop of thinking that's that's um incredibly stressful I, I think the beginning of adulthood is is very stressful and fraught with anxieties and bad relationships and mistakes and getting things wrong you know fucking up at work and I think alcohol is often too easy a way of kind of pushing those thoughts out of your mind. I always remember listening to Louis Theroux try and uh, analyse in that wonderful Louis Theroux way the appeal of drinking in an interview that he did after he made a show about binge drinking in Britain. And he said for a lot of people who work very hard throughout the week and who have a very limited amount of time allocated to them at the weekend to unwind... Drinking to excess is a time and cost efficient way of ensuring that you have a supposedly good time or that you feel relaxed in your body for those few hours. How can you guarantee it? Well, by drinking a certain amount that you know will make you feel a certain way. I mean, we've all been fired or dumped and drowned our sorrows the good old fashioned way, haven't we? Guys? Dolly? (laughs) CJ? I think you've probably witnessed me doing that firsthand, actually. (laughs) As you discussed with Charlie, I think the fetishization of wellness and being well slept and clear-headed is something that's relatively new actually and I think it would have been so ubiquitous on social media for that generation growing up and in our 20s it was everywhere on social media but I think it's something that we unpicked or questioned or kind of sneered at. Scarlett also mentioned she feels like her generation have watched a lot of their parents struggle with alcohol dependency or bad relationships with alcohol or go through treatment or support programs such as AA. In other words, we now grow up in a world that has a language and an openness when it comes to alcohol consumption and troubling relationships with alcohol rather than our grandparents' generation, many of whom drank themselves into terrible health, if not death, and it was just passed off with a jolly he or she loves a drink. So a younger generation, understandably, is more cognizant of the dangers of habitual mindless drinking, I think. There's definitely in um, in Gen Z so much talking, so much thinking, so much discussing, so much knowledge of the effects of things and decisions, which is great, but I do wonder if it's also quite stultifying. Yes. I think it can po- possibly freeze you up on occasions rather than liberate you and stop you from making active choices out of fear. But in general, I think this openness and awareness is a really, really good thing. It, it, it just didn't happen when I was a teenager. Something I found interesting that neither of our interviewees mentioned was confidence alcohol was not just a tool for escapism and relaxation for me and my friends when we were students and when we were in our 20s it was often the tool that I used for socializing it was how I bonded with new people um, made friends at work started conversations chatted people up most of the stuff I got up to as a student would have been unthinkable had I not been drinking and that's actually something I find encouraging about these new statistics that perhaps the generation coming up beneath us have a greater sense of social ease or a sense of self that means that they don't need the confidence exacerbating effects of booze to kind of uh, bolster them in social situations totally with you on the drinking for confidence i could never do a work event where i knew no one yeah. without a drink i yeah. never get drunk i actually never get drunk at work things very deliberately um but I wouldn't be able to do it without one drink. It's something I found particularly hard when pregnant, actually, was walking into a room and not being able to have that kind of jolt of confidence. I think I could do it now, actually, 
not drink mm. in a room where I knew no one. But that's but that's a very recent thing. A friend of mine gave up alcohol and. Because, you know, every year I try and do one or two months after Christmas where, where I don't drink. And he said this thing to me that I really notice every single year, which I wonder if you had when you were pregnant. He said that the minute you stop drinking, you look around you and you see nearly every person you love has a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol in that they rely on it too much for social confidence or for bonding or for unwinding or whatever. No, I definitely didn't notice that. Oh, did you not? No, I didn't notice that. Oh, I, just, I do. I just noticed when you're not drinking how much everyone reeks of booze. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to Laura Atkinson about this new research. She's the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Style and friend of the Hilos, who said that she felt that these statistics almost nearly always only represent the urban middle classes. And that yeah. if you were to go to a British town on a Saturday night... She was referencing hers. She's from Newcastle. The majority of kids would still be getting battered. It's like when we talk about sustainability. Wellness Mm. is a luxury. Self-care is a luxury. But what's interesting is that the research shows that this new statistic is across the board. The abstainers are a mixture of all social classes from North and South of England. And also in terms of our on-the-ground journalism, we interviewed two white middle-class published authors. That's a very narrow cross-section of society. So please don't think that we think we've covered the mm. full debate. Mm. We just wanted to get two Gen Zers, one who drunk and one who didn't drink or very rarely drunk, mm. just to see their responses to the um, stats and also get their point of view. I was so interested by this research, particularly because over the last year since my book came out, I've kind of accidentally become a bit of a defender of drinking. I knew when I wrote about my experiences with alcohol and drugs in my memoir that I would receive criticism for it or be accused of kind of glorifying drinking. I think this is down to two things. I think we culturally don't like women having fun or behaving in a free way on the whole without being reprimanded or punished. Um, I also think we live in an increasingly puritanical age that's obsessed with collecting evidence for subpar morality, such as a person drinking or being drunk. But here's what I think about drinking now. And when I say this, I have to be clear that I'm not an addict. I'm not speaking on behalf of addicts alcoholism is a disease one which I've never experienced I'm speaking on behalf of what I think is a large proportion of people my age in Britain someone who's experimented with drinking pushed the boundaries too far someone who's made mistakes with it and also made some wonderful memories with it some of it that was fun and some of it that was also not so fun I think the act of drinking with friends for me on the whole was an enjoyably cathartic thing for the majority of the time and certainly what it is for me now it's a kind of celebration of being alive I think it can be a sort of tribal bonding experience I think it was a great way for me to let off steam and feel totally present as someone who's too often in their head And sometimes that's dinner at a mate's house. Sometimes it's a couple of glasses of wine in the pub. Or to be totally honest, sometimes it is on a massive blowout night out dancing. Shall I tell you one of my favourite drunk stories? Because some of the best stories are when people have been drinking. Is when I noticed that my friend after a dinner party was trying to do the washing up with what she thought was a dish sponge. Oh, it wasn't a cat, was it? No, it was a block of cheese. (laughs) 
lose stories like that, lose Generation Z. Do you think it's now uncool or not okay to vocalise wanting to get pissed? I worry we're too PC now to be able to admit that. And I'm not sure if this will win me any favours, but that feels a bit sad. It's a part of British culture to occasionally, and in safe spaces, yeah. get trolleyed. While I'm so pleased that young people are exploring what works for them and certainly drinking does not suit all personality types or, you know, metabolisms or different bodies, it would be a shame for young people to become scared of drinking. I think we're in danger of becoming too obsessed with productivity and being busy and having lots of assets and achievement to show evidence of personality in life. And also living forever. Yeah, we're like too well. totally. Obsession with, I don't need to get to 100. Yeah, Thanks. yeah. And I think we have to make time for pleasure. I think pleasure is a really important part of existence. And I know you don't need to drink to get pleasure. Plenty of people are sober and have lives full of relaxation and pleasure. But if you like having a drink, I think our increasing need for control in all areas of life should not usurp that desire. I think we're in danger of analysing and obsessing our every move. Therapy is a brilliant thing and not only has it become much more common, but it's also becoming destigmatised as a lot of mental health is. You're not the only person, Dolly, who begins a sentence with my therapist said, (laughs) I read a piece yesterday with that very opener. But the downside to that is that there can be guilt attached to anything that may not make you feel like you're very optimum, almost like you are actively negating your chances at happiness. And I don't want us to get to a point where a donut or a glass of wine or even both is considered a radical Mm. and risky thing. That being said, I don't want to take away from the fact that I feel immensely glad and proud despite it having nothing to do with me, of a younger generation who aren't relying on alcohol as a crutch. I think we did that too much when we were young. And without it, you can probably fully actualise your real self a bit more easily. And bravo to that. Let's crack open the champagne. Some journalism published over the weekend ignited conversation between Dolly and I on a topic we've been long interested in and discussing between ourselves for some time. That in today's political and social climate, we are led by our feelings and our gut, placing our hearts over our minds. And despite what emotional creatures we are ourselves, we have to wonder, what are the dangers of this? In his column in the Sunday Times magazine, Josh Glancy discussed how the Kavanaugh case has ignited online fury like never before. He recently attended a dinner where he says the sole basis for invitation was people who haven't gone totally crazy. It was a small event. (laughs) He says that America has gone radioactive since he arrived in the country in 2016. And what has been shocking to me in recent weeks is watching people whose minds I respect resort to the kind of theatrics you might expect from a toddler being coerced into an early bedtime. Increasingly, he writes, emotion has replaced reason. Facts are now subordinate to feelings. Even our most rational opinions are informed by sentiment. What facts we care about what theories we decide are important. I think it's such an interesting column and I really agree with him. The only problem is I think it's so difficult to talk about this in the context of the Kavanaugh case, which I do think is quite an unusual case because we're in a moment now where women are finally coming out with stories of historic sexual abuse and so many women across the world have been carrying these experiences in secret for such a long time because of fear and shame. So when one woman comes out publicly to speak about it and the most powerful nation in the world deems her a liar, that is going to have an incredibly explosive and emotional reaction from people. 
A large part of the problem, I think, is how impulsive the internet has made our reaction to news stories. We literally don't allow ourselves time to properly cogitate and to let things marinate before we air our views or rather feelings. Glancy says that the role of unhinged emotional reasoning has grown alarmingly and he cites a new book by social theorist William Davies called Nervous States, How Feelings Took Over the World. Our ability to track current events and marshal real-time information has made armchair generals of us all. Glancy has declared a new republic of bile, which is, quite frankly, a brilliant term, Mm. I think. Do you think we are all armchair generals, Dolly? Do you know what? I don't think that the problem is that, actually. I think it's more the affiliation thing, which we've talked about before on the podcast. It's about... I think the problem is not assessing one's own personal thoughts on a subject and instead replicating the the thoughts and crucially the feelings of those funny, clever, popular online leaders Mm. who we Mm. all want to follow. I was guilty of this a lot for my first five years on Twitter, I think, where I just wasn't really thinking for myself a lot of the time. I was seeing what other people were declaring usually in a series of emotional declarations and I would copy them and I find it really embarrassing retrospectively actually and I think back to like I know that there was a number of times where I would retweet a cause for something without even going onto the link just because I thought that that emotional reaction was proof of me being like a really great guy. I think that's really honest and I think a lot of um, young people probably do that and actually it's only recently that I've really tried to when when a cause really resonates with me I've really tried to put it into my own words yes rather than like you say, retweeting yeah. or, you, or using someone else's. And here I am definitely not parroting the thoughts of someone wiser than me, <laughs> Max Hastings, who investigated a similar conundrum in The Times on Saturday, where he argued that the gains of the Enlightenment are imperiled. Now, that sounds really lofty, but it simply means, again, that we are no longer putting rationality at the centre of our arguments and decision-making. Education properly teaches us how to reach conclusions through a measured examination of data, writes Hastings. But at a conference in London, last week titled the evidence initiative it they met to discuss evidence-based decision making and how it's threatened by growing polarization fractured media and the accelerated pace of technological change yeah i do think it's worrying and i think the problem is when we're in a climate of such prolific emotion and that being the default response to something everyone feels they have to express an emotion rather than a rational thought or a question or a challenge because if they don't then it's evidence of them being heartless or not caring or uncompassionate. Something I found particularly interesting in Hastings' piece is where he cites American academic Tom Nichols, who has written a new book in a similar vein as William Davies has, titled The Death of Expertise. He writes that ignorance is now championed in the same way that established knowledge used to be. Mm. To reject the advice of experts is to assert autonomy, a way for Americans to demonstrate their independence from nefarious elites and insulate their increasingly fragile egos from ever being told they're wrong so right i mean that's trump isn't it the idea that you can be right without doing the homework that's a very trumpian moral the former fbi director james comey said on a podcast that i listened to or this year or last year it was on the economist podcast that a president's lasting legacy isn't their policy it's their morals And Trump is changing the moral scape of America. And I don't just mean his followers and his fans. I mean, all of us Mm -hmm. are being subsumed by that, as well as creating the most polarising political climate in a very long time. 
that that thing about resisting expertise i actually blame google for that i think the birth of search engines has meant the death of the phrase i don't know anything about that please inform mm. me i cannot tell you the number of times where i have heard someone talk about something in a work like a, around a, a conference table in a meeting in a work situation or in a social situation and instead of asking them what they meant i would go to the loo and google it and then return to the desk or the table as an instant authority and connoisseur I mean, Bridget Jones, she'd have known exactly what she was. Exactly. She'd have known um, F.R. Levis was dead. (laughs) I think this ignorance is fuelled by a lot of people not watching or engaging in the news because it's all too shit. And I do find the growing trend quite worrying. Of pushing the news away because it's just, like, all too much. All too much and all too sensitive. In next week's episode, spoiler alert, which is an author special, we discuss the constant bad news cycle where you learn something awful every time you turn on the news. And that is really true triggering for some people but it can also mean that we sit around a table opining on a ton of subjects we haven't to be honest done any homework on is it good that we're having debates especially about stuff that we might not know lots on and politics yes at the high low we don't believe in keeping quiet out of shame for not knowing enough but should that trump god that word is so loaded rational thought in policy making absolutely not 300 years after the Enlightenment, and as Hastings writes, the knowledge revolution is in danger of drowning under a tsunami of misinformation matched by a rejection of open debate. And I think I'm a bit guilty of that. I think I'm a bit guilty about rejecting open debate because, like, I'm thinking of conversations I've had with my mother recently where I've been, yeah, where I've definitely, um, I've put feelings at the centre of my logical argument i also think the fear of 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 open debate is i think it's to do with our preoccupation at being ostensibly the best at everything yeah i have to win a conversation yeah but i but i think i think we're living in a culture where it's all about proof of of triumph how many times have you been in a conversation with people and a new subject comes up everyone chips in and and says something verbatim that they've read in a Guardian article or heard on a podcast or on a Vice blog and passes it off as their own. Then after they've handed that information over, they're just no longer interested in the conversation I think I do this. I think I do this. This is very... um... Do you do that, do you think? I think sometimes I'm more interested in what I can add to the debate than in what I can learn from other people. I think that's very, very admirably honest of you because it is something that I that frustrates me that I see in conversation a lot particularly with people my age where once they've just handed over the thing they want to say they're just they're not interested in talking anymore (laughs) I think it's a culture that's about kind of demonstrative intellect point scoring and I think I used to be guilty of this and the worst is probably still am guilty of this and actually the worst is that happened to me a few years ago and I always remember it as such an embarrassing moment where you parrot someone else's opinion um, like you're sort of naturally just a monologue is coming to you off the top of your head and then someone else in the conversation pipes up that they've read that article as well <laughs> <laughs> I actually am quite good at always citing where I read stuff because I don't want to ever ever risk that demonstrative intellect is a great saying Dolly Thank I think you. that's a that's a column <laughs> Max Hastings referenced some interesting surveys which I think really speaks to the culture that we're fostering right now um, in 2015 I'd have loved to see a more up-to-date um, survey as if anything I think this would be more acute now mm. but in 2015 Ohio State University researchers tested reactions to news stories among liberals and conservatives and they found that 
both groups inclined to discount science that contradicted their worldviews. When exposed to unpalatable data, they reacted by questioning the validity of the research rather than of their own thinking. That's the whole fake news thing, yeah. isn't it? If you yeah. don't believe something's possible, then you just call it fake news and you dismiss it. And let's be clear, it's not just Trump who does this. We may not call it fake news, but we all denounce things that we don't believe to be valid in one way or another. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. We can't be wrong, the research is wrong. One thing I do like there, though, that I find reassuring, is that it's liberals and conservatives, because you read a lot about the damage of the liberal echo chamber, and it's something I worry about sometimes. So it's good to know that this is across the board, and not something that can be levied just against liberals. I think it's more a general trend for thinking and conversation of our time rather than mm. that's something that's that's particularly politicised one way or the other. It's a postmodern worldview that attributes similar importance to feelings and thoughts, and I'd argue quite neoliberalist too, because it's all about the self and what feels authentic. And it can all feel quite snowflakey, except, as Glancy points out, it also applies to 50-year-old Republicans in the Senate. Mm. Except I then read a great piece on Forbes written last year about how actually this isn't anything new and it's not all self-serving or bad. It's actually, writes Karl Moore for Forbes, quite a common and altruistic and bonding sentiment in war. Looking back through military history, we observe that soldiers were willing to die for their comrades, superiors, and even for their country's interests and societal values. A memorable Hollywood scene that depicts the importance of emotion in this context takes place in the movie Braveheart. Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, a commoner, unites the 13th century Scots in their attempt to overthrow the English ruling class. Gibson, with his face covered in blue war paint, gives a rousing speech, inspiring his troops to head into battle. While many soldiers know that they may die, it is the emotion in the scene that gives their death meaning and engages the audience. I mean, fundamentally, I do think politics is an emotional thing. It's why I spent my 20s getting into so many unnecessary debates with Tories at parties because I would I would get frustrated that they would refer to economic systems being more important than people and I'd end up feeling like um the woman shouting about her own mother's piss in the thick of it. Have you watched that episode? No, that's an in-joke. Charlie's doing a snuffly laugh. Apologies to anyone who hasn't got that reference. Do watch it as it's, I think, the best episode of the thick of it. Series two, episode one. Anyway, politics shape (laughs) our lives, so how can it not be personal and impassioned? But that doesn't mean that every single discussion needs to be fuelled by emotion alone. And it certainly doesn't mean that we're all obliged to personalise every current affairs issue and story with our own emotions in order to validate our voice or give proof of being a passionate person. And actually, I think a news story where this was really shown to do a lot of damage is in the Charlie Gard case, where there was a lot of media coverage of the doctors saying that there was nothing more that could be done for him and his parents understandably were very emotional and very angry about it but doctors at Great Ormond Street doctors who worked very very hard and were saving lives were being abused by campaigners outside the hospital who were accusing them of being you know murderers and unthinking and unfeeling and I think that was an example where we really let kind of collective and public emotion cloud rationality Mm. charlie guard's parents being upset about their child dying is completely understandable Mm. Mm. but doctors being picketed for making a medical decision based on science and being called murderers i think was an example of where this went really 
too far and um, started to really really damage what hospitals do what Mm. policy should do Mm. i think it's right that people who are emotionally invested in their child have a very emotional response Mm. but we can't then make um campaigns and lobby when uh doctors were were actually just studying the rational and scientific facts i think it was hannah gadsby to to take a bit of a pivot with this one i think it was hannah gadsby in her stand-up show nanette who said that she's always surprised when people use oversensitivity as an insult what's the alternative she questions not giving a shit that said i think there's a difference between feeling it and letting your feelings override your thoughts Mm. which actually is something i've been working on in myself recently as when you have a baby feelings not only become quite intense they sort of eat you and spit you back up whole on an almost minute by minute basis so what's the conclusion doll should we all be on one woman missions to be more rational i don't think that's a bad idea actually Neither do I. I think there's a world in which we can exercise our rationality and, most importantly, our curiosity and listening skills, as well as keeping our heart and soul fully intact. That's the goal for me. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to The Hilo. You can email us, show at gmail.com or tweet us at The Hilo Show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It boosts us in the ratings and helps other people find us. And all the links and sources and articles in this episode will be in the show notes on the drop-down menu of however you're listening to this podcast. I love how you say boosts every week. Boosts! I always say boosts. It's getting more and more exaggerated. Boosts! And here's some French chill to see you out. Bye-bye. Au revoir, ma chérie.